Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin in a moment after a message from this week's sponsor. Government relies on innovation. Innovation relies on us. 5G enables big ideas, and we enable 5G. It starts with Qualcomm. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast, coming to you this week in a special episode from Strasbourg, France, where there's been an extraordinary week of drama here at the European Parliament. That was mostly because of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. He was trying to keep the Parliament from initiating a censure procedure against his government, known as Article 7 in EU jargon and he ended up attacking all around him, especially his own colleagues, and they went on to censure him anyway. There was an unexpected strength of determination, however, from the European People's Party MEPs, and even their leader, Manfred Weber, was forced to switch sides. He realised he'd need to do that if he wanted a chance to become European Commission President in 2019. All of that drama overshadowed and underscored Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union speech. The Union is fragmented and fragile. And while I'm told Juncker's speech was better in the German version, the English interpretation was all over the place, and Juncker himself seemed tired. Of the good ideas in it, and two that were praised included a bigger EU border guard and a true Africa partnership, many of them seemed late, like they should have been announced two or three years ago. The other big vote of the week was on copyright, a landmark battle between tech companies and other creative companies about how to pay creators in the digital era. In the end, it was mostly a slapdown to the tech companies, But importantly, the fight is only just starting. Now the lobbying will move to national capitals and a compromise will need to be thrashed out between the European Commission, Council and Parliament. And that brings us neatly to this week's interviews. The first is with Lior Cohen, YouTube's global head of music, a renowned hip-hop producer and manager, and he talks to us about how music has changed in the digital era. Our second guest is Elaine Deneuf, He's running the first ever European Democracy Festival, happening in Brussels from September 20 to 22. There's no panel this week because I've been stuck in Strasbourg. Over to Leo Cohen. Joining us now is Leo Cohen, in his past career a very successful hip-hop music producer and now YouTube's global head of music. He's seen many sides of the music industry over decades and we're going to talk copyright, a source of great controversy and seemingly endless circular argument and one that's headed for an important vote at the European Parliament mid-September. So welcome, Leo. Thank you very, very much. I feel so privileged to be with you. 
Depending on who you listen to, this reform is either going to kill the internet by limiting what material can be shared online without paying copyright fees, or it may crush struggling writers or musicians by not paying them for their work. Now, before we dive into that discussion, I need to declare two interests. The first is that when I worked for the European Commission as a spokesperson between 2011 and 2014, one of the topics that I was responsible for was copyright. I shared that with, of all people, the spokesperson for Michel Barnier. And it was my job to help open up the copyright legislative reform and make sure it took account of internet and digital users, not just people from traditional industries. At the same time, I've also received copyright payments dating back to a book I published in 2006. So I've got perspectives on all sides of this debate. You shouldn't be the only one to have full disclosure. My full, dis- my full disclosure is that I've been making a living in the music business for 37 years, and I'm a simple music man, so I'm not sure maybe you should be talking to a lobbyist and not me. I'm simply a person that's interested in artists, songwriters, labels and publishers and moving our industry forward. Can you tell us a bit how the industry has changed? Because it's clearly gone through uh, different mediums, there's clearly different types of music, and now there's a whole new scale of opportunity with the internet. But obviously it also changes the balance of power sometimes between who is going to arrange where value is distributed across all the people who make and distribute music and other content. So what's your take? Where's the industry come from and where is it heading? Well, let me tell you a little story. I used to be the road manager for Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. Never heard of them. And back in the day, we used to have to do meet and greets at record stores. Do you remember record stores? I went to one of them once, yeah. So I was very excited always to do meet and greets at record stores because you got an opportunity to meet the most important fans of the artist. I used to walk the aisles of a record store just to observe what's going on. And I remember in the front of the store was always the place where they had the records that were the most popular. And I remember looking at the Beastie Boys tray and they were mostly gone and there were only a few copies left, but they were number 32. And I remember at that time that there were a ton of records at number one. It was Bruce Springsteen at the time and it it didn't look like anybody had bought any of those and he was number one. And it was at that moment that I realized, wow, there's some real funny business going on here. Here, there's hardly a copy of the Beastie Boys, but they're way down on the charts. And Bruce Springsteen was the number one selling album. And I realized at the time, after I started learning more, because I was just 22 years old, that the labels had a walled garden around distribution. And because of the CD, the expense of the CD, the cost of manufacturing and shipping and obsolescence and and how one had to buy their way into retail, 
they were able to create a walled garden that protected that business. And the ability for the internet to uh, happen allowed for the evisceration of that walled garden and that distribution network. And that's how the, the fundamental change that's happened in the business is that there is no more walled garden. And distribution has been eviscerated. And now I could record you tonight and put you up around the world at a very, very low cost. And that's brought in a bunch of new artists and songwriters to the game and has given access to consumers that's unprecedented and never happened before. And I think right now we're entering the golden age, the new golden age of the music business. There are two ways that the industry can get paid. One, by subscription, and two, by advertising and people paying with their eyeballs. And it's an incredibly exciting time that I think brings in a lot of diversity and gives a lot of artists and songwriters more opportunity of making a living in music. And I think this is a very unique and special time. I think it's unquestioned that barriers to entry have really come down in this and other content industries thanks to the internet. But we also hear others complain that the dividends they can make are lower using digital platforms unless they make it really big. So I was wondering, what's your take or your defense of how YouTube and others are changing that distribution across the value chain? And would some of these vicious copyright debates actually go away if the big companies found a way to pay the smaller artists more? So I don't actually look at the world like that. I look at the world as there's two different consumers. And what we've done is actually listened to our partners in the music industry and understood that even though we're highly effective in getting people to pay with their eyeballs, they wanted us to layer in a, another offering around subscription. And it's like when you get on a plane, you'll rather get on a plane that has two engines and I think the industry wanted to have two engines fueling this growth, one subscription and two advertising. And so the question is, if you take a look at subscription in its bespoke offering, all the services pay the same. If you're comparing subscription to advertising, then of course subscription pays more. But we consider all the consumers valuable. Consumers that pay with their eyeballs are valuable consumers, and they should not be shut out of the process. Just because they may not be able to afford $120 a year or 120 euros a year, shouldn't make them excluded from being fans and consuming music. And because one day they will be able to pay a subscription and we want to be along that process all the way and give them a choice 
if they want to pay with their eyeballs or if they want to subscribe. And I think the argument is being confused when people compare subscription to advertising. Of course, subscription pays more. That's why it's called a subscription versus people who pay with their eyeballs. That sounds familiar in the journalism world as well, because we at Politico even have uh, free content. I guess that's the, the advertising model. And then we also rely very heavily on subscription. We wouldn't be able to do a lot of our journalism if we didn't have that. Most mature businesses are 60-40, 50-50 subscription to advertising. And so the music business, most likely when it matures, will have the same type of profile, that a large chunk of the revenue will come from subscription and a large chunk would come from advertising. And they're both really important for the artists and for the songwriters. You know, I have a really lucky job because I wake up every morning and my North Star is to get more artists and songwriters making a living making music. It's a wonderful way to wake up. And it strikes me that digital is something you can trace very easily. So yes, the payment rates might be low when it's that advertising model, for example, but you can't really listen to the music digitally without someone knowing that it's happening. And, and that is a more secure way to get some kind of money flow back to the creators, I guess. Most definitely. It's just a unique moment in time that I so believe in this moment. I'm so proud of what we just launched with YouTube Music. It's an intuitive, incredibly thoughtful, has the world's greatest catalog, and I feel very, very proud of it. Um, we're in 17 markets so far, going to 65, and we really, really are proud of the product and hope that you get a chance to enjoy it. Absolutely. Uh, now, you're not just launching a music service. We've got this big vote in the European Parliament next week on reforming the EU's copyright system. What's your take on what that reform should look like? We've obviously have we've got those two sides of the debate that I mentioned earlier, and uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on what, what do the MEPs need to do, in your view, to get it right? So I'm a simple music person not a lobbyist, and I'm here to launch the YouTube Music app, talk to the creative community, try to understand what their pain points are and what we could do for them. But I always worry when people can find business solutions and don't actually figure it out together. Like, I really want to understand what is the creative community's desires, what's important to them, and hopefully we could help them achieve that. And so I think that whenever you have uh, legislation around the internet, it's very concerning to me because who knows what the unintended consequences of that legislation is. All I want to do and I know the people that I work for want the same thing because I represent the music business. That's how I've fed my family, put my kids through school, is through music. 
And so I know, um, having been at Google and YouTube for the last year and a half, um, where their minds and hearts are. And whenever I talk to some of the creative community, and I'm in all the labels all the time, they are a champion of YouTube. The labels love YouTube. Tell us, tell us more about that, because I would have thought some of them would treat you as the poacher turned gamekeeper, but it sounds like you're, you're winning them over. Uh, it's not that we're winning them over, is that they are sourcing, finding their next biggest stars on YouTube. They're connecting with their fans on YouTube. They are utilizing YouTube as an opportunity to grow their business. I think the disconnect happens on the policymaking parts of those record companies, not the labels. The labels, the creative executives value and consider YouTube an incredible platform for um, their artists. And I think the disconnect comes with the label groups. There's some sort of disconnect that I can't actually put my finger on. Uh, I'm, I'm not skirting the issue. Listen, we're building a platform on a global level that is reaching over a billion and a half people. And we are helping those people monetize through paying with their eyeballs and signing up for subscription. Now, one final question. When we look back at music, the sort of things it used to be politically associated with were censorship or moral panic around rap lyrics or music being part of protest movements. Do you buy into any of the new arguments that copyright filters are restrictions on freedom of speech? I'm not skirting the issue, but someone has to present to me what is the argument? What can we do better? Now, listen, is advertising shifting from traditional media to digital? The answer is yes. Is it shifting slower in Europe than it is in America and other parts of the world? Yes. Will it shift? You tell me. Are you watching your children consume on their television or on their phone? Um, On demand or event? I think on demand, on their smartphones, that's how they're consuming media. I'm a simple music person. I know that the company is dealing with all these issues. They take it incredibly seriously. They want to do the right thing. The right thing oftentimes is quite complicated, but I know a lot of people are discussing it and trying to make sure that we come up with the right conclusion. So I'm sorry if you asked me about Brass Monkey or Sucker MC or Fight the Power, I probably would have a much better answer for you. We'll give you a pass on that one. Leo Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you so much. That was YouTube's Leo Cohen. Next up, Yubel Festival's Elaine Denaith after this message. Government relies on innovation. Innovation relies on us. 
5G enables big ideas, and we enable 5G. It starts with Qualcomm. Joining me now on the podcast is Elaine Deneuf, who is the organizer of the first European Democracy Festival. It's called Jubel, and it's going to take place in the Parc Leopold, which is in the European quarter of Brussels, on September 22, kicking off at 10 a.m. and going all the way through to 10 p.m. Well, you were inspired, I think, by the Swedish Almedalen Festival, which was a week-long democracy festival that takes place on an island off the Swedish mainland. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a democracy festival is? What can people expect when they turn up to the park? Well, first of all, let's pay credit to the the person who invented that, because he is uh, quite famous. Uh, Olaf Palme invented that exactly 50 years ago in '68. And that's also part of the explanation of the name of our festival, Jubel, which in the Scandinavian languages means uh, jubilee. And it's 50 years, indeed, that such a democracy festival has been invented. So uh, we we came across the idea a little bit by by chance uh, while searching on the Internet. And we immediately thought that this national festival could be brought to the European level, let's say the supranational or pan-European level. But what we did not know at the time is that in the meantime, this phenomenon and this concept had multiplied already in nine other different countries. Five Nordic countries, the three Baltic countries, but also the Netherlands, and next year Germany is going to be on the line also. So there is something spreading through Northern Europe, at least. Is the idea that you've been inspired not only by the festivals, but by some of the really aggressive politics we've been seeing lately, and that it's it's time to get this uh, tide uh, shifting southward and, and having all of Europe involved? Well, you're right in observing that this phenomenon of democracy festivals is for the moment more a northern phenomenon than anything else. And we, we still need to see whether it's going to catch in the thaws or more uh, to the east of Europe. Now, all these festivals have grouped themselves into a platform. And this platform now gets inquiries and requests for information from countries which do not have such a festival, but which would be interested in organizing one. And it comes from Moldova, the Ukraine, Belarus, but also beyond Europe, South Korea and Nepal. It is a place where people come to discuss about the society they live in, the democracy they live in. So they discuss about politics, clearly, but especially essentially about their problems, what matters to them, their identity, uh, their, as we say in French, their vivre ensemble. And so they do that in a situation of great equality among participants, among themselves first, but also with the people who tend to be the decision makers, politicians, leaders of NGOs, corporate leaders, etc. The atmosphere is totally relaxed. These are summer open-air festivals. And uh, there's no question of hierarchy. Uh, When you have a question to ask, you ask your question and you're supposed to be answered by the politician or the corporate leader. That is exactly what those festivals are about. So we're talking sort of small group discussions, not big wigs on a stage giving a lecture, but people sort of coming together, not wearing suits, not being intimidated, but just really talking about everyday problems and what's on their mind. 
Definitely, they are not wearing suits. That I can guarantee. Now, the formats of discussion can be very, very different. You have workshops, you have panels, but you have also speeches given on a main stage. And in the uh, Swedish version of these festivals, you, you even have slots reserved for each of the parties represented in the Swedish parliament. And they all get their fair share of direct talking, but the most formats we witness in these uh, festivals throughout the summer are discussion in smaller groups where people are really in a dialogue among themselves and with the people being part of the panel. And who are the sort of partners that you're getting involved? Can you imagine that the European political parties will want to sign up? Or are you more working with local networks, activist groups, people like that? Well, our partners for, for this year are very uh, varied. First of all, we this has been made possible by the King Baudouin Foundation, which gave us you know, the, the financial support to, to get this uh, started. We have the uh, European institutions on board. I have to say that we are absolutely happy to have them, but we don't want this festival to become a festival of the EU institutions. It's a festival about the European thing in general. So our main partners in terms of delivery of content are about 15 different European movements of all kinds. Okay, many of them are pro-European, but there are also some of them which can be quite sceptical about the way uh, Europe is functioning nowadays. But we have them animating workshops, animating panels and delivering a lot of content. We will have the participation of some political groups of the European Parliament, but there we are still discussing. For sure, we're going to have two or three of them. Important to notice, we invited everyone, because in the tradition of the national festivals in the north of Europe, everybody is invited, including the extreme left, the extreme right, the Eurosceptics, and nobody is being left out. Now, the people respond or not to the invitation, that's another, another question, but everybody is invited. And what are you most looking forward to? What's the session that you want to participate in more than anything else? Or will you be too busy doing all of the logistics of the day? Well, of course, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, walking around uh, all the time. But I think there, there will be very interesting sessions about the question on how to create a conversation culture in Europe. And that is the place where we're going to speak about the, the ECIs, you know, the one million signature petitions, the famous uh, citizen consultation, the idea launched by uh, Macron, but also something that we are going to experiment throughout the festival ground in the Parc Léopold. And that is what we call, maybe in a bad English, the captation tools. Mm -hmm. Let's call them interactive tools. So ways to try to get what the people really think about Europe, its shortcomings, its achievements, but not using the traditional way of surveys and, and questionnaires. I think it's very interesting. We do a lot of shouting and a lot of talking uh, in Europe. Maybe it's not only Europe, but it's definitely true also in Europe. So it seems to me like there's going to be a lot more listening at this festival than you see in traditional political conversations. So I think that's something to be applauded. Is there any final message that people who are interested to come along need to hear? Well, that it's going to be fun, because one of the aspects of these festivals in the north, they are summer festivals, open air, relaxed, but there is also music and there will, will be music and they are fun. It's a way to reconnect the citizens with, with politics, because one of the reasons why people are disinterested in politics, it's also because it's boring. And that's what this 
and these festivals in the Proval are all about. This year is a prototype year. We test out a lot of techniques and ways of organizing this. But as of September of next year, and I don't have to remind you that it is going to be after the European elections. Well, before we've sorted out a lot of the big top jobs, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, among other things to be sorted out. But probably, I'm afraid, the results of these elections may be a little bit disappointing for many Democrats in Europe. That will be a reason more to have a, a full-blown first real edition next year. But I would really encourage the people to come this year because they're going to taste the flavor and have a sneak preview of a, a new animal in the landscape. And that is a democracy festival where people speak out, but above all, first listen to each other. Elaine Deneuve, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember, if you haven't signed up to formally join our community, you can do that at politico.eu forward slash registration. Just tick the EU Confidential box and we'll send the podcast to your inbox each week and invite you to any podcast-related events. Podcasting is a team effort, so this is a big shout-out to Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray. secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.